0: We're going to be looking at quite a bit of scripture tonight, as you can tell by your page. And what I'm trying to do, Keith decided not to come tonight because he got sick. And so I put this together, and I thought if it's really detailed and intense and it wears you out, I'll never be invited to come back and fill in again on a spur of the moment. But here's your exercise. Hopefully, you've cleaned your hands Or sanitized them after shaking hands and stuff. Because here's what everybody has to do. Because we're going to be flipping through our Bibles a lot. You need to lick your fingers and get them ready. Okay, don't lick your fingers. See if you can find them. Let's start in Romans chapter 16. Turn to Romans chapter 16. We're going to be recognizing who we are in Christ. And it's very important if we're going to walk with the Lord that we recognize who we are in Christ. We have to recognize how we're saved. We have to recognize what that what transpired. We have to recognize what we're called to do if we're going to live a life that brings honor and glory to the Lord. So like I said, we're going to be looking at quite a few quite a few verses tonight, but we're going to be looking at God's de- decree to reveal his plan. So in Romans chapter 16 beginning in verse 25 as Paul ends the letter to the Romans, he says, "Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. God made known the mystery of the gospel through the scriptures. And here's the thing we have to recognize that this mystery that was made a mystery all throughout the world, from the beginning of the world, God's word revealed to us salvation. He revealed to us the gospel. And Sometimes we fail to recognize that. We believe it, but we don't recognize it. What I mean by that is, if I truly thought the gospel reveals to me God's plan for salvation, or the Bible reveals to me the gospel, God's plan for salvation... It would change the way I look at it. Because once, if we did not have the Bible, and that's like my wife is dealing with a, a, a guy that does her toes and her fingers. You know, this pedicure, medic, those expensive things that women do, okay? That, uh, but, and he's Vietnamese, and he speaks some English, but he's always asking questions, and he wants me to come in. I don't know if he wants to do my toes or if he wants to talk to me, but I'm a little nervous. But in that, she's been having this talk with him and trying to explain a little bit about the gospel. But he understands, you know, limited things. So we're finding him a Bible, a dual English, um, Vietnamese Bible. So that when he looks into the Bible and he begins to read, like the book of John, the book of Romans, he can understand he's a sinner. And Christ came. God sent his son Christ came to die so that he could have a relationship. That's how we were saved. We heard someone preach the Bible. We heard someone explain the Bible. And that's how we knew. That's how God's plan is unfolded to us and laid out to us through the Bible. And that's exciting to know. What is our spiritual, what is our spiritual, spiritual condition before conversion? Look over in Ephesians chapter 2. As I said, we're going to be looking at a lot of passages. I even put them on the paper, understanding this, I ran through this really quick, so you might have a typo, you might have, a few things like that. Don't hold it to me, even though I am from Oklahoma. They would all thank you. One caught it. So anyway, the rest of you have sympathy, I guess. Ephesians chapter 2 verse one says this, "And ye and you who made He made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins." We are dead in our trespasses and sin. So what was our spiritual condition before conversion? We were dead. I read a great kind of illustration about this. And it was like if I had been swimming and I died, I drowned. And And then someone came and breathed into me and I began to have life again. You know, like you do it, you breathe on them, you pump on them and all that stuff. And all of a sudden my life came back that's what salvation was we were dead and christ breathed into us life and we revived it became alive but we were dead in our trespasses and sin what does god the holy spirit do concerning sin look in john chapter 16 verse 8 john chapter 16 verse 8 john 16 verse 8 And when he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do concerning sin? It convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit comes, and because of the Holy Spirit, we recognize sin, we recognize judgment, we recognize righteousness. What is needed before someone can know the truth? What is needed? Second Timothy chapter 2. 2. Timothy chapter 2. A lot of these things you are familiar with, you believe, but tonight I just kind of want to bring them all together into one package. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. It says, In humility, correcting those who are in opposition... If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Repentance. What is needed before someone can know the truth is repentance. And God grants that. God grants us that we recognize our eyes are open to know we need to repent. And who grants the right to become children of God? John chapter 1, verse 12. John chapter 1, verse 12. John chapter 1, yeah, John chapter 1. I say it so many times so I'll know where to go, and then I forget. John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who grants us the right to become children of God? God does. Through Christ god does through christ and we notice that this privilege or this right is not granted to us because of our birth that we were born into a family like my parents were christians so my my righteousness is not based upon the right to become a child of god because of the family i was born to or my blood or my own efforts okay my works or the will of the flesh or of the will of man or own volition It has nothing to do with that. Let's look at it again. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it would be the will of God Okay, that we were born in to become children of God. So what is Christ's desire for those who are his? Look in John 17, 24. We touched on this Sunday morning. John 17, 24. This is Christ's prayer. So what is his desire for those who are his? Verse 24 says, Father, I desire, so now we know what the desire is, that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here's another great proof for the Trinity. That he was loved before the foundation of the world, the Son. okay, But also his desires that we will be with him and recognize his glory. And that will be in heaven one day. So we think about our conversion. Flip back into the Old Testament. We're going to look at this passage in the Old Testament. Numbers. Then we will also be looking at in the new testament coming up shortly but numbers chapter 21 we have the children of israel here and so our conversion first we have to be convicted of sin so as we look in numbers chapter 21 beginning in verse 5 numbers 21 verse 5 and the people spoke against god and against moses who, who have you brought us, why have, sorry, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Okay, let's just stop there for a minute. That just blows my mind. Here, every day, they wake up with this manna. They don't even have to go work for it, it's just there. And they're griping this loath and this nasty bread. I am sick of this nasty bread. That's amazing. They want to go back to Egypt where they probably didn't even get bread. But here they are. They're beginning to sin against God. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among his people. And they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make us fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. And here's one of the things that we recognize in this passage, that they had to recognize that they were sinners, that they had sinned. And part of our conversion is the repentance that we return turn. That we recognize we're going to turn and go a different way, we're going to repent of our sin, we're going to turn from our sin. But we first have to recognize we're sinners. And in America today, that is the biggest struggle I have when I deal with people. They don't think they're sinners. And here's the thing: We're taught this, even at, at teaching our children and taught it at a young age, we're born good. We're not. We're born sinners. And we have to recognize that we are sinners. And I mean, little baby back there, cute as can be. Oh, I got to hold, I got to, well, I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. I don't know. So last night, we got to keep the youth pastor blazing Kaylee's little boy. And he thinks I hung the moon. I'm just saying. He thinks Papa Bear has got it, okay? Well, number one, she does all the TV programming. So ever since he's been conceived, he has heard my voice five times every Monday when she's doing the sermon for television and then when she listens to it again when she types in stuff so I can speak and he knows my voice I'm going to use that as a great illustration the youth said he'll forget it soon enough because <laughs> he'll smile and they go he won't do that much longer it hurts my feelings but anyway so when I was holding him last night and feeding him and he would just look at I don't know where I got off of that but he just he just it was, it was fun. Oh, He's precious, but he's a sinner. I mean, one time when I was holding him, he started crying. He's a sinner. He wasn't thinking of me and me having to walk him outside, bounce him and all this stuff. He was just crying. For no reason. He was full. Well, maybe need to burp, but anyways, but in that he's a sinner. He may be four months old, but he's a sinner. We're all sinners. We have to recognize we're sinners. So the conviction of sin. What has God given people to reveal their sinfulness? Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. You're familiar with Romans, but Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans chapter 3. Whoops, I was in 1 Corinthians. I was going to say, that is not right. Romans chapter 3. Let me get there real quick. Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the scripture gives us knowledge of what sin is. And as we think about this and we think about the Bible, not only does it reveal the gospel... The mystery of the gospel is revealed to us through the scripture, but also it reveals sin. Without the gospel, we do not know what sin is. We do not, or without the Bible, we do not know what sin is. We do not know right and wrong. The law, the Bible explains to us, tells us what sin is. And that's like dealing with Lisa going back to the the guy that does her nails, he just has a moral compass. He doesn't understand sin. We're all good, and he, he probably believes in Buddha and stuff like this, but in that, he's just, he doesn't understand true sin. Because why? He doesn't know the Bible. The way you know sin is the Bible. And so we go on. Number two, when the people realized the mistakes they made in crucifying Christ, how did they respond? Acts chapter 2. It's 36, not 26. That's one of my mistakes. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 and 37. How did they respond when they realized they had crucified Christ? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know it surely, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Spirit. They were pierced to the heart, it says. When they recognized what they had done to Christ, that they were sinners, they were pierced to the heart. And I think about us so many times as As we recognize what we did in our sins, and our trespasses and sins, we were dead in our sins. And we recognize our sin, it should pierce us to the heart. And even today as believers, when we we sin against God, it should pierce us to the heart. And they wanted to know, what shall we do? These were not Christians, but they recognized that. What shall we do? We know repentance from sin is what happens. So why did the tax collector cry out to God in the temple? What, why did he? Look in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 13. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven... But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So here it is. Why did the tax collector cry out to the Lord, to God? Because he knew he was a sinner. And we are sinners. Again, that is one of the things I struggle with the most in talking with people. They do not recognize that they are sinners. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll look in verses 9 and 10. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And it's talking about when we sin or we do something wrong, there can be a grief or a sorrow, but there can be a godly sorrow that is recognizing we're sinners and that we need to be saved. And so what godly sorrow over sin produced in verse 10? Repentance. So in verse 10, this godly sorrow produced repentance. And what did it lead to? Salvation. Repentance means turning away from sin and turning to God so this sorrow that they had for their sin, just like the tax collector pierced his heart, or the, the leaders, it pierced their heart that hurt. The tax collectors beat his chest. They recognized they were sinners, and they needed to repent. So how do you repent? You turn to God or turn to Christ? When the people had been bitten by the deadly serpent, at the, and they had to turn to the serpent on the pole, they were exercising faith in what God had said, God had said he told Moses to tell them, "You turn to the serpent on the pole, the bronze serpent, and you'll be saved." They had to believe God's word. So look in Romans ten thirteen. Romans ten thirteen. You're very familiar with these passages. What promise is given to those who call upon the name of the Lord? Romans ten thirteen it says, "For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." God's word. It's truth. Just like the Israelites had to believe to be saved, not die, to live, they had to believe God's word to look at the serpent on the pole. We have to believe if we confess, we can be saved. Look over. um, I lost my spot. Okay. Then it says, just as the people had to repent and turn to the pole, we have to turn to Christ. Look in John chapter 3. Here's the parallel scripture to what we read in Numbers. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 14. This is As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, as we just read, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So just like these, we must exercise faith in what God, his word, has said. That if we place our faith in Christ, we can be saved. So we, just as those people, in numbers, we must exercise faith in God's word or in what God has said. Number three, faith is required for salvation. Look in Romans chapter 10. You hear me say this almost every Sunday morning. Romans chapter 10. Verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10, Romans 10, 8 through 10. But what does it say? The word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation we recognize here what faith is required for salvation we must what must you confess jesus is lord we must confess that jesus is lord he is the son of god he is the gift what must you believe you must believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead he's not in the grave he's been he's been raised from the dead he's alive and you must believe that Faith means trusting in, clinging to, embracing Jesus Christ, who is the object of our faith. He is the gift of God. We have to recognize. We believe these things. Don't get me wrong, but we're going to put them all together. We must become a slave to righteousness. Look in Romans chapter 8. Flip back just a page, probably. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. You're probably familiar with this passage. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For believers in Christ, what is the penalty for sin? There is not one. There is no condemnation because of Christ. Man, that's exciting to me. When I recognize all the sins and that there is no condemnation for that because I'm in Christ Jesus. And for what is the believer set free? Verse 2, the law of sin and death. I'm free from sin. Sin has no control over me. Now, I can still sin, don't get me wrong, but I'm free from sin and death. It's just, death is just a shadow now. And it doesn't, it doesn't stop me. It's just the entrance into heaven. And sin has no power over me. I'm free of that. I don't have to be under the bondage of sin. Now, there's consequences to sin. Don't get me wrong. But I don't have to be under that bondage. And I'm free from that. And when freed from sin, what does a believer become? Look in Romans 6, 18. So we're freed from the bondage of sin. What does a believer become? Chapter 6, verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. What is a slave of, what does that mean, a slave of righteousness? That means that's what I am going to do. I am a slave to do righteousness. No longer am I a slave to sin, To sin, I'm a slave to righteousness, to do righteous. So what benefit results? Look in chapter 6, verse 22. Look down a few verses. But now having been set free from sin, same saying, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness in the end, everlasting life. So what this means is that we're being sanctified. We're becoming more like Christ. And the outcome is eternal life. Sanctification, again, is the process of conforming to the image of Christ, and the end result is eternal life. We're set free, and we recognize that how do I know those things? God's word, and when we look into it. And so here's kind of I want to spend a little time tonight, since we understand those, the evidence of salvation. I didn't put this in your notes, but you can turn there just to kind of throw you off a little bit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Keith will be going through 1 Thessalonians, but we're going to touch on it this evening just a little bit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll be beginning verse 2. Here's the evidence of salvation. It says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. So we have the working of our faith, the labor of our love, and our hope, the enduring of our hope. Besides faith, what does God take note of in the believer's life? So besides faith, besides faith, what does God take note of in the believer's life? Look in Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 10, Hebrews six ten. For God is not unjust to forgive your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So besides faith, what else does God take note of in believers? Number one, that your work and love, which you have shown toward him and others. So your work of love that you've done to him, for him, and others. He takes note of that. And as we've gone and looked at it, even Colossians, where we're told to love one another, forgive one another, live in peace of God with one another. So God takes note, and it, 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 means, it means that we believe and we're obedient to him when we have a love for one another, when we do these things. And we're going to look more at it in just a moment. But also the love for him. We do it because we recognize what's happened to us. We recognize his grace in our life. We recognize through his word what he did for us. And so many times when I I study the Bible, I miss that. Because I know it, but I don't take time to stop and reflect on it. That he's revealing the mystery that even the prophets of old spoke about. He's revealing it to me. And because I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to do as he called me to do and I'm going to love him and I'm going to show this love to him, then I'm going to show it to others. So, number one, what is the source of love in the life of a believer? Romans 5, 5. So, flip back to Romans chapter 5, verse 5. What is the source of love? What is the source of love in the life of a believer? It says, now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So what is the source of love in the life of a believer? It's been poured out to us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us to be able to love one another, to be able to love God. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot do that. Again, that goes back to our salvation. You have to have the Holy Spirit from salvation, but also you have to be led by the Holy Spirit. He's got to be leading you. You've got to let him direct your life. And without that, you cannot love. Number two, what is, the, what is true of a person who is born of God? 1 John 4, 7 and 8. You're probably familiar with this one. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Again, this is the labor of love, the love that labors. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So what is true of a person who is born of God? They will love one another. And when I really stop and think about that, I have a feeling there's going to be some people who go to church quite a bit that maybe are not born of God because they don't have love. And I know you can have droughts in your life. You can have moments in your life where you struggle. But if we know God and the Holy Spirit is inside of us, that empowers us to love. And if we can't love one another, it makes me question if the Holy Spirit's inside of us. Because the Holy Spirit empowers us to love. Number three, how does a true believer show love? 1 John chapter 3, 18 and 19. 1 John three, eighteen and 19. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall, and shall assure our hearts before him. So it's not in word only. You've heard me say this a lot and with, and I can just do it here with you again to help reiterate this. But communication is 10% verbal, 40% tone, 50% body language. So you are all one body. You know, you're all brothers. You're one. You're the bride of Christ, okay? And I'm going to hurt your feelings. I've hurt your feelings, and I'm going to apologize. And you let me know if you believe it. Ready? I'm sorry I said it it's like I was talking to a kid and he was saying that his mom said don't be don't be okay how'd she say it I'm trying to think of the exact wording I may have to just make up a word so you can get it but anyway um, like don't sass back to me it's something like that I can't remember the exact wording and he goes I didn't say anything she goes you did with your eyes so now I'm going to tell you I'm sorry with the right tone. You tell me if you believe me. I'm so sorry that I hurt you. No. See, and I can tell people I love them, and my body language, my actions prove otherwise. I can tell my wife. I can tell Lisa I love her, and then I can do things to her or do, not do things for her to her and prove to her I don't love her. And that's what he's saying here. A true believer, not with your words. Now, we need to say our words and our tones. I'm praying for you. Oh, I bet you are. <laughs> Meet me out back, and I'm going to show you a little prayer. You know what I mean? And uh, <laughs> but, but our tone sometimes, you know, good morning. <laughs> what got in your cereal? You know what I mean? And there was terms we used to say, Back in the corporate world, I won't say here. But anyway, but see, sometimes, or even just like I had, I was talking with um, a, f- a person in the church, and they were, they were a minority, I'll just put it that way, and they were going, yeah, nobody in the church likes me. I said, why? You've been coming for a long time. Why? What, what are you saying? He goes, well, I walked down the hall. They, didn't, they, didn't, they wouldn't even look at me. So what did he think? They didn't say, I don't want you here, I don't like you, you stink, your hair's messed up, your teeth need brushing. They didn't say anything like that. But the body language showed differently. That's one thing I love about our church. I had a couple in the Next Step class that we've been doing, and they told me, they said one thing, and he's from Alabama, which is like a whole other world, and then she was from Jamaica, and they were talking, and he goes, we went to some churches, Bible churches, believing churches, And they wouldn't even let us in the door. You think about that. In Midland. And they said, we have felt so welcome here. And sometimes you wonder, why do we shake hands? You know, we're passing germs around. Well, we are doing that. But also, as long as you don't lick them, you're okay. But but in that, one of the reasons is just for that. When someone walks in and we don't know their past, we don't know what's going on in their life. If someone comes up and shakes their hand or welcomes them, hopefully with the right tone, but again, the body language is shaking a hand, what message is that sending? We love you. We're glad you're here. Whereas sometimes we don't do that, then we may, and let me just say this, we may not do it on Sunday because we have a missionary and we're trying to give him plenty of time. And you're going to go, oh, yeah, uh-huh. His words don't match his actions. He just said do that and we don't do it. But in that, I want you to recognize The body language of the body, we're to love one another. The things we do, the way we embrace one another, with love. It sends a message more than our words. And we have to be careful. That's the labor of love that he's speaking of here. Next, hope that endures. A hope that endures. Oh, we missed the faith, didn't we? Go back up to faith. Why didn't someone say something? Faith that works. Let's go back up. Faith that works. What reveals genuine faith? Look in chapter, James chapter two, verse eighteen. Since we're pretty close, James chapter two, verse eighteen. This is way too much writing and notes for me. Y'all, y'all know that, okay? James chapter two, verse eighteen, says this. Well, let me get in chapter two. I was going. That didn't make sense. Chapter two, verse eighteen. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So what reveals genuine faith? Our works. The things we do. It doesn't save us. But it shows our faith. It shows our faith that when I, one of the evidence of salvation is my works. So let's go on and look at some others. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. So my works that I do that match my words. Verse 6 and 7 of First Peter chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been greed by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to bring praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith is produced by our trials. It's proven by our trials. So as we go through these trials of life, and we even grieve sometimes, and we're tested by trials, and we go through these difficult times, it produces and shows our faith. It's an evidence of our salvation. Doesn't mean it's easy, but as we go through these difficult times, we go through these trials, and it produces and it shows my faith and my salvation and my Savior that he's over this. He controls this. He's, in, he's sovereign over all this. And so because of that, I can trust him. He will be with me as I go through this trial. And again, my body language shows that. My body language, my actions show that these trials are still producing faith and bringing an honor and glory to the Lord because I can go through those even with a joy How? By being in God's word and letting his word feed me and letting him work through me. The Holy Spirit inside of me brings me through those trials. He'll give me more grace. He'll be with me as I go through those. And I can use those trials to help someone else or to encourage someone else. And if I do not have the Holy Spirit in my life, I can't get through those trials. It's impossible. But as we go through them... And we recognize he's producing godliness in me. It's proving, and I'm looking at him, and it's proving my salvation by my works. Number two, for what did God prepare believers for? Look in Ephesians chapter 2. Most of you know this passage. Ephesians chapter 2. You know, I say that, and I remember when pastors used to say that, and they still do today. I know you're familiar with this passage, and I'm going... Can't tell, I can't even tell you what it says. You know, I might when you get going, but I can't remember the reference sometimes, so I'm going to quit saying that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here we go. We're his workmanship. We were created for good works. What did God prepare, believe, prepare believers for? good works. Faith that works. We've looked at different passages. Look in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 verse 8. This is a faithful saying and these things I want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works, that these things are good and profitable to all men. So it says, whatever those believers in God should do, what? Well, good works. Why? Because it's profitable for men. And it's not talking about it's not talking about believers, it's talking about mankind. When we do God good works, and that's like Dave Ramsey used to say when I used to teach his class all the time. He said, if, if believers would do what believers are called to do, they would give, they would do, because only about 3% of believers tithe or whatever he was saying at the time, we wouldn't need all these things that the government throws at us. The schools would be different if all the Christians were running the schools in a sense, because we'd be funding everything, and it would change the world. But we don't do those things. And it would be profitable for men. When we are doing the things we're supposed to do, it pro- profits, just like with Joseph. Him honoring God by his faith profited a whole nation of Egypt. You at your workplace, you doing what's right and you doing good works, profits your company. On and on and on. Our city, all those things. So it's profitable for everybody. So we have the faith that works, love that labors. Now we're going to jump back since we're jumping around. Hope that endures. What gives us our motivation to endure? 1 Timothy chapter 4. Just flip back a few pages. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. For to this end we both labor... And suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. What gives us our motivation to endure is we have fixed our hope on the living God. That's our only hope, is that the Lord has conquered death. He saved us, and we fix our eyes on Him, as it says. In verse 10, for this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. It's the only way we can keep going. and That's where our hope begins. Describe the hope that Christians have. Look in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to look at some different hopes that we have. Galatians 5, verse 5. Galatians 5, 5 says, For we through the Spirit, here again the Holy Spirit inside of us, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. The act of doing right, the righteousness, some even believe this is talking about heaven. But also I think it applies to here, the hope of righteousness. We can do what's right because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Without the Holy Spirit leading me and guiding me and helping me, I can't do right. I can't, I can't live a righteous life. I can't be above reproach. I can't do those things. But with the Holy Spirit leading me, I have the hope of righteousness. I have the hope that I can do good. I have the hope I can overcome sin. Because of the Spirit inside of me, it gives me a hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Flip back over to there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I told you you should have licked those fingers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8. It says, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. I have the hope of salvation. The hope that endures, I have the hope that I'm saved. Not because of my works. As I spoke about the peace of God, it comes because I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit. And I have this helmet of salvation. I have this hope of salvation. And if I don't have a hope of salvation, I'm not going to have much of a faith. Because I don't know if I'm saved. I don't understand if these works are enough. But this hope as a believer of salvation. And then Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 7. Titus 3, the last hope that we have. It says that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I have this hope of eternal life. As I think about this life and my hope, not only of doing what's right, the hope of my salvation... That when I don't do what's right, I'm still saved. But then the hope of eternal life. And as I think about this earth that I walk on and this life that is so short. But eternal life is eternity. And I have that hope. And I have that hope that I'll, I'll have no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin. But I'll have a joy and a peace. And I have the hope of that. And there's days that's all I have besides my salvation hope, but I forget about that when I sin sometimes. And then you you start to go, but I have this hope of eternal life. And so what three things did Paul notice about the Colossians? This is why I picked this this morning because we've been going through Colossians. So I want you to go back to Colossians chapter 1, or this evening, I'm sorry. I don't even know what day it is. Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. What three things did Paul mention about the Colossians? Let's start in verse 3, but 4 and 5 are what we're going to look at. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith, faith that works, in Christ, and of your love for all the saints. We talked about love. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. All of that right there is what we just talked about. The hope of the gospel, they heard the gospel. Because of that, they had a faith, their faith in Christ, number one, their love of all the saints, number two, and their trust in the hope laid up for them in heaven, number three. Their faith in Christ, number one, their love for all the saints, number two, their trust in the hope laid up for them in heaven. So how do we apply this to our lives? We realize that God has chosen you for salvation, and how should we respond? Look in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 4. <clears throat> Again, thinking of this mind this this concept, you're dead, you've drowned, and you're laying there. The Spirit of God comes and breathes life into you. Christ came, he died, God sent the Son. Spirit came, breathed life into you, and you became alive, a new creature, alive again. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. When we stand before Christ, we are holy, we are blameless because of his shed blood. We stand before the Father and God, Father God, and Christ died so that we could stand before him. But also, we should it should motivate us to live this. When I think about this, it should make my faith show my works. My works should show my faith. I said that backwards. Because I recognize before the foundation of the world, he loved me and Christ covered my sins. And it should motivate me that my works would prove my faith in that. My love for everyone, not only him, but for you. It's because I recognize what Christ did for me. And then also this hope that I have in a lost and dying world. I don't have to worry about hell. I'm not going there. I've been saved. I've been redeemed. I'm his child. I've been rescued. I've been life given inside of me. And I think about if if someone was dying and someone brought him back to life, we would think so differently of that person that saved our life. But we can't even comprehend what Christ did for us, how he saved our life from damnation. And we recognize that it motivates us. So we to live a holy and blameless life. Number two, how are we exhorted to live? Look in Romans chapter 6. Flip back a few books, Romans chapter 6. How are we exhorted to live? Romans chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Let's go back to that scenario. You're laying there and you're dead, you drowned, and all of a sudden you're brought back to life. We see it in the movies all the time. My wife and I are watching some Hallmark flicks, okay? Those old series that, you know, all these, all these murder mystery things and all that stuff. And when people come back to life or they're saved, they just don't fall back like they're dead. They jump up and I, they hug and kiss everybody and I'm like, let it end. You know what I mean? But anyway, but they do. And you think about if someone was laying on the side of the pool, dead, you bring them back up to life, and you're standing there and they look up and they recognize what happened. How do you think they're going to respond? Go, you should have let me die. No. They're going to jump up. They're going to hug you, thank you, all of these things. That's the way we're exhorted to live. To Look, look, look at it again. Verse 12, 6. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. In the concept, jumping up, thanking him, going, I'll do anything for you. You saved me. You didn't have to. You saved me. You loved me. You brought me back to life. I will, I will serve you all of my days. I will love you all my days. I will be holy. I'll be blameless. I'll live for righteousness' sake. Not that we're perfect, but I'm so going to desire to serve him and know him. And so we don't let him reign in our body. Then your homework. Don't act so excited. I want you to read Psalm 116. It's 17 verses long. And I want you to think about this and applications you can make. and It's on your paper. What does it mean to be a servant? As you read this in David's writing, what does it mean to be a servant? What bonds of yours have been loosed? Speaks of it in this passage. And then, what does it mean to offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving? I would like them emailed to me by Sunday. I'm kidding, but I, but I want you to do that. I just want you to because now that we've gone through this.